Let's uh, ask the Lord's blessing. Dear Lord, we're very grateful for your word. We're grateful for every opportunity we have to look it over and to meditate on it, to think of you. We ask that in our conversations and in our gatherings, we would be going back to it and what we've learned in it. Help us this morning gain more in our lives in your son's name. Amen. You don't often find Ezekiel being the arena of a Bible lesson, unless somebody is sort of going all in timey on you and, and wants to make up stuff and call it biblical. Um, I don't know why I was reading in Ezekiel. Um, it could be just one of those moments, so, yeah, a book you like and you pick it up and it just opens to some place and you start reading and you remember everything about it but you like reading sections of it because the writing is good or the um, and this section of Ezekiel this is in cha late chapter 1 down through early chapter 3 it's that sort of monumental introduction of the vision of Ezekiel the, the first verse of Ezekiel in the 30th year in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the exiles by the river Chebar, the heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God. On the fifth day of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile, King Jehoiakim, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi, in the land of the Chaldeans by the river Chebar, and the hand of the Lord was upon him there. It just, it, it, that kind of... Uh, key moment, that leveraging you into the vision. And Ezekiel is, he's right at the time of big things in the world, okay? If you want to say the, 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 the word of the Lord was big in the world at the time of Ezekiel. You had Jeremiah at the same time. You had Daniel at the same time. Uh, in the pagan world, you had uh, uh, Motsu uh, 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 Lao Tzu is a little bit earlier in China uh, you had Zoroaster around the 600s maybe 100 years before but this century in the world was really big you had the Buddha um, I, I said that for April's sake because she, she's a Buddhist she's not really But God was revealing himself, and obviously all the more when you look at the three great prophets of the, of the period to the Jews at a time when they were essentially nobody. Their nation had fallen. 605 B.C., uh, the Babylonians took over uh, Judah. 597, and that's when Daniel went into captivity. 597, they rebelled. Nebuchadnezzar cleaned their clocks and took Ezekiel into captivity. And 587, they rebelled again, and he destroyed the city. That's when Jeremiah was left behind in Israel, and the rest of the people were taken into captivity. They're just a captive people in Babylon at this point. And so Ezekiel's ministry is down there in the trenches, basically, with the regular folks who are in captivity. Not like Daniel, who's a, who's a mover or shaker. You know, noble birth, aristocrat, um, placed high in the palace for Nebuchadnezzar and subsequent kings. 
But the image that Ezekiel gets at this really high, we talked about Nebuchadnezzar a few weeks ago. I'm looking at Nebuchadnezzar's response to God and his humility. This is a, a, such a key point in history, such a low point for Israel. And God comes on like a ton of bricks. And if you read the, the first chapter, before I get into it here in the sermon notes, we start with verse 24, but the previous verses are the vision of the cherubim coming out of the north in this kind of, which Eric von Daniken thought was a UFO, but it was these cherubim carrying the throne of God. When it says God enthroned on the cherubim, this is what it's talking about. Ezekiel sees it. Now, it's startling. It's startling to a prophet. We, we have we have a different meeting with God as Christians. We, we come to grips with the gospel and we know that we deal with God personally in our response to the gospel. But it's not so startling. that We're startled perhaps by the work God does in our lives, but we don't have this sort of, you know, woe to me kind of moment. Well, let's pick it up there in verse 24. Speaking of the cherubim, and they went, the they is the cherubim, I heard the sound of their wings like the sound of many waters, like the thunder of the Almighty, a sound of tumult like the sound of a host. When they stood still, they let down their wings. And there came a voice from above the firmament over their heads. When they stood still, they let down their wings. And above the firmament, over their heads, there was a likeness of a throne, in appearance like sapphire, and seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness, as it were, of a human form. And upward from what had the appearance of his loins, I saw, as it were, gleaming bronze, like the appearance of fire enclosed round about. And downward from what had the appearance of his loins, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire. And there was brightness round about him. Like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness round about. You get the rainbow image there. This is not an LGBT sermon, but it's a rainbow of God. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. It's pretty impressive, pretty startling. And when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard the voice of one speaking. Now, I, I had that whole paragraph in there, not because we're going to dissect it and say, tell you what sapphires mean, or rainbows mean, or all the rest of the imagery. We're not becoming students who are trying to write a dictionary of, of uh, terminology in visions. Because the prophet is actually given concrete information for you to pick up and carry away with you. He's giving him things he could actually say. And he said to me, verse 1 of chapter 2, Son of man, stand on your feet and I will speak with you. In the most startling, 
You might say the height of human history, the height of God's expression before Christ of to man on earth from his prophets. When David, when they, what's the guy's name? Apostle, Jewish guy, um, Paul. Um, when he says, I'm, I, I'm glad I speak more in tongues more than you all, but I would rather speak five words with my mind that the church might be edified than 10,000 in a tongue. God is of the mindset that when, no matter how startling a, a religious experience you can dish out to people, and he's dishing one out to Ezekiel, and Ezekiel's on the ground groveling, God wants to have a conversation, five words with his mind. I want to have you standing up, and I want to speak to you. You can learn very little from the vagaries of, ever read Nostradamus? Um, lunatic. His quatrains of prophecy, people go, I think that's Hitler. You just got to read it and go, no, you're Hitler. They're not sensible. I think maybe this is why people love to study the visions of Ezekiel or something. The parts that are not concrete. Rather than going to the part where God says, stand up, please, I need to talk to you. I know my entrance was a little over the top, but I am God, and it's going to come across that way. And when he spoke to me, verse 2, the Spirit entered into me and set me on my feet, and I heard him speaking to me. And he said to me, Son of man, I send you to the people of Israel, to a nation of rebels who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. We know that because we're in captivity in Babylon. It's gone badly, our rebellion against God, our disobedience. But the people that God is sending Ezekiel to have got a deeper problem than just sin. Everybody was, everybody sinned, right? And if you looked at the Samaritans, or you looked at the, uh, the Assyrians, or you looked at the Egyptians, you could have gone to any one of those people and found sinners galore. Rebellious against the law of God. Pursuing their own lusts, yes. But there's a problem in Israel, or for Judah. Verse 4, the people also are impudent and stubborn. Not just sinners. Well, one of the reasons I think this passage appealed to me is because our day is much more like this. People are not just sinning. You would go into any workaday part of any major city of any major civilization in the past and preach against sin and catch everybody flat-footed and they would know they were sinners. They'd be kind of embarrassed about it. Impudent. This is, you know, I'm not telling you what the Hebrew word means. Uh, the Hebrew words here, impudent and stubborn, are how, you know, set against God these people are. And the translators used impudent and stubborn. I think it's apt. 
The English word impudent comes from uh, the word pudor, which means shame. So impudent is the person without proper shame. And that's what you have people telling us. People telling us some, someone who was just arrested, some mom in, I don't know, Oklahoma, no offense, married her daughter. She's been arrested. She married her daughter. I think there might have been meth involved. Before she had married her son. And you know what's going to happen? She's going to go probably go to the Supreme Court. If they can get a lawyer. Because people have no shame anymore. They're standing in their sins with their forehead made of brass and their neck stiffened. They are not going to be embarrassed. And that's who God is sending Ezekiel. I send you to them, and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God. Now, he doesn't tell them what the actual message is. He's going to, he, his, this is right at the beginning of the book. The prophecies are going to be given different messages at different times in Ezekiel's life. He's going to be prophesying against certain things and other things. But this is the commissioning. He says, you're going to be carrying the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God. And whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house, they will know that there has been a prophet among them. That was the interesting passage to me. Whether they hear or refuse to hear. Ezekiel isn't sent to make them hear. We sometimes think that's kind of, well, yeah, sure, we got to we got to somehow make sure, you know, inside your family, little Johnny knows about Jesus. Somehow make sure that, um, that the gospel reaches everybody in the country, everybody in the world. We've got to convince everybody. So apologetics becomes really important in convincing people. And then you wonder if there's something, and if they say they're not convinced, you think there's something wrong with you and what you did, what you said. God is commissioning Ezekiel to get the declaration done knowing that his success is in being known to be a prophet. A prophet has been among you. Whether they believe, whether they hear, or they don't hear, they will not. So when you set yourself goals, you've heard me say before that your task is not to convince people. It's nice when you do. You know, I get it, and I really thank you for the opportunity because I get to stand up here with a microphone every Sunday, and I get to prepare something that I want to say. And I don't, you know, think that you guys are brass of forehead and stiff of neck, impudent and stubborn. And it would be nice if you agreed with me. Frankly, I don't care. You know, I like you all. I'd like you to be right. 
But my task is to be understood in what I'm saying. So that if you understood me, and it was convincing what you heard, you would be convinced. But once I put on myself the task of convincing you, people can be such bastards about not believing. And that can ruin your, your emotional day. I mean, you can just say, I feel that, that everything is yanked out from under me. I can't seem to get any traction in ministry. No one's convinced. You've seen various of the prophets go, nobody believes, Lord. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. Elijah had the same problem. No one. I'm the only one. Sometimes we put the wrong task on ourselves. The ideas of another person are not yours to necessarily fix. I, I think you can convince somebody. I don't think it's impossible to convince people. I think it's very possible for the wise person to win someone to the Lord. I was raised by Jim Wilson, for heaven's sake. There is the gospel, it has that effect on some people. Whether they hear or whether they refuse to hear, the hearing does exist. But you can't set convincing everyone as the task. You will convince some. And he tells you in verse 6, And you, son of man, be not afraid of them, nor be afraid of their words. Though briars and thorns are with you, and you sit upon scorpions, be not afraid of their words, nor be dismayed at their looks, for they're a rebellious house. And you shall speak my words to them, whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house. He keeps repeating this phrase, whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they're a rebellious house. And then he reminds Ezekiel. And I don't know how to far to take this, because I've just been thinking this a couple days. Some tub, tub time produced the thought, and I started to realize that, oh golly, this is, this is another undoing of all my reality. Um, it has to do with ideas, and where ideas exist. Guess what? They only exist in sentient agents. They don't exist in the world. Democracy is not out there as an idea. Secular humanism is not out there as a, just an idea floating in the air we breathe. It is only held. Begin to realize that if there were no God, not only would ideas not matter, but when all of men came to the end and the solar system ended, all the ideas would be gone. No, certain truths about gravity would not be true any longer because truths could not be. You can't have truth without sentience. Ideas exist in people. And when they exist in people, when they exist in people, that means that that's what we're farming. That's what we're dealing with. Your ideas and your communication of their ideas. Your ideas and your communication to them about ideas. But you, verse 8, son of man, 
Hear what I say to you. Be not rebellious like that rebellious house. Because your ideas are also ideas in question. Don't be rebellious like they're rebellious. Because I need you to preach the word of the Lord to them. So you've got to accept. You have got to hear. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. Now this is a, one of those uh, you know, things that shows up. Isaiah does it. There's elements of the mouth as the prophet is being commissioned to uh, Isaiah 6. Um, um, has a section, we'll look at that in a moment where his, his, a coal is put on his lips. I'm a man of unclean lips, and a coal is put on his lips. Here, Isaiah is given a scroll, I mean, excuse me, Ezekiel is given a scroll to eat. And I looked, and behold, a hand was stretched out to me, and lo, a written scroll was in it. And he spread it before me, and had writing on the front and on the back, and there were written on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe. Kind of a You know, kind of in that kind of type, probably looks like tattoo art. Dark stuff. Goth stuff. Both sides of the sheet. This is pretty, this is great, this is great imagery. This is great movie material. The cherubim showing up, the god, the, the prophet falling down, being stood up and being told and handed the scroll. And it looks like the necrochrom, what's the name of the book? Yeah, that one. Book of the Dead. Lamentation, mourning, and woe. And sometimes we, because we, we put this task of convincing people, not this reality of going, some will be, some will won't be, but we feel this need to convince everyone. I was corresponding with somebody this week who was dealing with somebody who wouldn't listen, a Christian who wouldn't listen, and they wanted to know what to do. I said, let it go. They won't listen. You don't have to keep talking to them. You don't have to keep... You can shake the dust off your sandals. You can walk away. Jesus did it all the time. Told the apostles to do it. But we feel, no, no. We've got to fix it. You can't make straight what God has made crooked. You'll win some. And so... We're so eager, we want, we are tempted to adjust the message to make it more positive. To speak of the gains that you have in Jesus Christ. Not the judgment we face, but the gains we have. Now you do have them, it's not, not true. It's temptation to not speak the lamentation. The morning. Well, obviously, this metaphor has to do with the words of prophecy that God is giving to Ezekiel to give, and they contain words of lamentation, mourning, and woe. That's not going to help. They're gonna, people are going to know he's a prophet. They're either going to hear or not hear. They're uh, going to be difficult. They're going to attack him. He's supposed to understand that. Don't be dismayed, because that's what you expect out of these kind of people. And hey, the message isn't going to be pretty. 
And he said to me, chapter 3, verse 1, Son of man, eat what is offered to you, eat this scroll, and go speak to the house of Israel. This is an interesting quality here. And so I opened my mouth, and he gave me the scroll to eat. And he said to me, Son of man, eat this scroll that I give you, and fill your stomach with with it. Then I ate it, and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. Don't you expect somebody making this stuff up and is all goth about it, right? It's already lamentations, woe, and and darkness. And he's the the shuffling, twitchy, half-naked prophet. And he's in a pagan nation, you know, laying into the Jews for their unbelief. And he's got the word. You'd expect it to taste like wormwood, right? You know, just this is going to taste like poo. Because that's the content. But it's not. He says, this tastes like honey. I was struck with that. I don't want to tell you what it means. It's given to you there. This is a dark, dark prophecy. It tastes to the prophet like honey. Deal with that in some way. Come up with some expression of how you would think of it. Have you ever read the judgment of God in some section of the scripture where he's calling down the end? And you go, sweet, that's just great. When it's just, when when judgment is just right, you want it done. People are feeling that way more with this election cycle, when things are weird. Whatever is going on with the election cycle, whatever is going on, is the nation even going to be saved? No matter what we do, no matter who we vote for. People are much more ready to maybe potentially hear. And he said to me, Son of man, go get you to the house of Israel and speak with my words to them. Now this is this next verse is a verse my father ran into. My father had wanted to go to the mission field. Wanted to be a missionary to Japan like my mother. Wanted to go learn Japanese and and go to foreign climes and reach the lost and the pagans. And this verse, when he was seeking the Lord on the matter, he's going to get out of the navy and do so. This verse, for, I, for you are not sent to a people of foreign speech and a hard language, but to the house of Israel. This is where he decided, now, you're sent to Americans. Now, whether or not that really was God's guidance of my father, this is the verse that he came upon when he was praying about it. Not too many peoples, a foreign speech and a hard language, whose words you cannot understand. Surely, if I sent you to such, they would listen to you. And that's what my father knew. That's why he desperately wants to have missions to international students. They've never heard of Jesus Christ. They don't know what the gospel is. They've lived in a world where either communism ran, held sway, or some paganism. It's just sin is their problem. The problem with America, and the problem with Israel, is it's a Christian nation. I mean, let's put that in quotes, okay? Very few people are Christians. 
It's a Christian nation. All that we sometimes all too smugly look back at the founders and say they were, had heavily Christian influences. Do you realize this is the dark payout? Because a Christian nation won't make Christian people. But it will make impudent and stubborn people. Because pagans, they just got sin. Because it felt good. They knew they were wrong. You can preach the, the law of God. You can preach the gospel of God. Forgiveness for dead works. But these are people who the big question is, will they hear or will they refuse to hear for their rebellious house? And that's who Ezekiel's being sent to. Knowing full well that if I sent you to the pagans, they'd listen. So this hasn't read there, surely, if I sent you to such, they would listen to you. It seems like God's not even in the business of finding people that'll listen. I mean, is that far removed from... What if you had a mission organization that you had a kind of like in, uh, what was that, minority report, where they could tell when you were going to do a crime before you did it? What if you had a, a kind of a prophet on staff with your mission group, and they could tell you who were the most ready to hear the gospel in the world? And then you had a committee that would send those missionaries out, and some guys on the committee going, no, 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 no. I know, yeah, they would be very ready to turn, but I want you to send people over here to those that are not ready. Because that's what God's doing. God's just working against your idea of what ministry is about. Ministry is about the declaration of God where the judgment of the man comes from the man. He decides if he's going to hear. It's his ideas. He's heard yours. He understands yours. He even knows you're a prophet. Sometimes you would go to those that would listen to you. Sometimes you seek the ripe harvest. You're even to pray for the ripe harvest. But sometimes God just says, nah, that's not what we're after. But the house of Israel will not listen to you. So, that's where I'm sending you. For they are not willing to listen to me because all the house of Israel are of heart, a hard forehead and a stubborn heart. Behold, I have made your face hard against their faces, and your forehead hard against their foreheads. Like adamant, harder than flint, have I made your forehead. Fear them not, nor be dismayed at their looks, for they're a rebellious house. He said, I'm just going to make you as, you know, stiff and ungiving in your stance as they are. They are going to be constantly presented with the understanding of the Word of God from Ezekiel that is unremitting. He is stubborn too by the hand of God. And then he says, moreover he said to me, son of man, all my words that I shall speak to you, receive in your heart and hear with your ears. It goes back to that. You eat the scroll. You don't be rebellious. And when, I said, when he said this, when I was reading through this, you receive in your heart and hear with your ears. Did anything spring to mind? Sprung to mind. And that's why I have it on the side over here. Isaiah 6, 5, on the left-hand side. I said, 
This is the early part of Isaiah, right after the great visionary moment. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphim to me, having in his hand a burning coal, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin forgiven. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Hear, hear, but do not understand. See and see, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people fat, and their ears heavy, and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. That's the passage that I heard as he told Ezekiel, all my words, receive with your heart and hear with your ears. Because this is the tension. Those that have eaten the word of God, for all that it says, it's sweet. For those who have taken all the words of God, And taking them to heart. Whatever you mean heart to be. I, you know, people have different you know, emotional center, center of your being, memorization. I, you know, you could have a discussion about what it means to receive them in your heart. You know that at least it has got to reach your sincere actuality. It has to be an integrity to the word of God in you. There's got to be a lot of the word of God in you. All of it. There's got to be an integrity to it. You have to be hearing this. You ever find yourself in conversation with fellow Christians and nobody, nobody is talking about the Lord? Does it ever bug you? Or is that just normal? Not that everybody gets to talk piety all the time. You talk football. But the people you talk football with that are the those who are fellow believers, should as naturally as they talk about football, talk about the Lord. Because they should all be more experts in the Lord, having heard all the words of God and received them in their heart. But that's what he wants of us, because the real tension in this world is not whether our team wins with the most converts and whether all of you are out there winning souls for Jesus because the convert numbers are what we're trying to measure by. We don't have to measure the convert numbers. Jesus Christ won on the cross. You don't need to win for Jesus. You need to be true for Jesus. You need to be ready to understand that in a stubborn and impudent people, they're not. They're going to abuse you. But you... The measure of you and your ideas, remember, ideas only exist in the agent, in the sentient agent, only in your head. Other people have heads too, and they have ideas, but your ideas are what this message is a judgment of. Do you take the distinction in a Christian nation to a Christian people, a church of, of evangelicals like you guys, and you go, when I hear the word of the Lord, I bow down. 
When I hear the word of the Lord, I, I'm a man of unclean lips, I need to be cleansed. When I hear the word of the Lord, it says, I want all of it, even if it's lamentation, mourning, and woe. All of it, to me, is sweet. Do I hear? Because that passage in Isaiah, that uh, Isaiah tells, the angel tells Isaiah, the seraphim, oh, actually it was the voice of the Lord in that, comes back again and is quoted by Jesus Christ in Matthew 13. Because this is the judgment. When Ezekiel says, Thus saith the Lord, and you either hear or you refuse to hear. But Ezekiel is obedient. He has done the word. He has spoken what was true. Matthew 13.10 Then the disciples came, came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to him who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from him who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Our God functions in this, this world with your ideas judging you. Your response to his ideas judging you. You pick up your own judgment. You decide, I'm the person who does not hear. I do not listen. I am impudent. I'm shameless. I'm a rebellious house. Or I have been one of those who hear and I want to hear more. That's why I want to talk. Not because we're going to be pious, but I want to know more of God. To you it has been given. To them it has not been given. With them... Verse 13. This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Um, I've shared this with you before. That's out of Matthew 13. But some of you haven't always been here at church not saying anything. Some of you are new. I love this passage because I have a study Bible. It's the Harper Study Bible. RSV. Notes by Harold Linzel. Good evangelical conservative scholar. I think he's dead now. This passage, Matthew 13. The disciples ask, why do you teach them in parables? Linzel in his footnote says, a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Spiritual truth is unfolded in everyday language and figures. The details of a parable should not be pressed beyond the principal object of the comparison. Each parable has a main point and was spoken to make that point easily apparent. Jesus says, I wanted to fool them. Harold Lidzell says, it's supposed to make it easy. Parables are there to be like Ezekiel, to be like Isaiah. Both Isaiah, Isaiah's in the 700s, Ezekiel's in the late 6, early 500s BC. Both of them, because they're dealing with an impudent people, they are being told to let their word of the Lord be a judgment to people. See if they hear. See if they listen. Don't 
work to make them listen, be rejoicing when they do, but your task is to bring the judgment. Jesus Christ brought it, and he says, verse 14, with them indeed is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, which says, and he quotes, which passage we just read from Isaiah 6. You shall indeed hear, but never understand. You shall indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, their ears are heavy of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should perceive with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn to me to heal them. They did it to avoid turning. Ah, oh, man, talk of impudence. Talk of stubborn. It's just not paying attention, just because I don't want to have to think about things because I might have to do something about it. The Lord tells Ezekiel, you shall receive all my words into your heart and you shall hear them with your ears. Blessed are your eyes for they see and your ears for they hear. Truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous men long to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. We have so much more of the glory of God, even though we don't get the startling vision of the cherubim, or the seraphim in Isaiah. That's the one time seraphim are mentioned in the Bible, that one spot. We don't get that, but we get the message far more clearly spoken by God of what is the redemption from your sins. And what we represent like Christ did, is the opportunity to find out who loves God, who yearns for forgiveness, who wants to know. And we don't do it by trying to admit everybody, because once we start to make this a positive, get everybody to join the club, we start getting fake Christians in our churches. And then they start voting for pastors, and pretty soon you have liberal pastors. Pretty soon, the, the whole institution goes to Hades in a handbasket because people wanted numbers more than they wanted hearers. What do you want the message of God to reach? Do you want it to reach those who have desired God? Do you want it to reach those who have heard from God? When it says in John, somewhere, 8, I was just thinking of this passage. I the... No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. That's what we're looking for. The message is one that hangs out there, ripe to be heard and believed. And the judgment is brought on the, on the individual by their refusal to hear, or their great joy in hearing. Verse 11 says, and go, get you to the exiles, to your people, and say to them, thus says the Lord God, whether they hear or refuse to hear. Let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're grateful for the time in your word. We ask that we would be those who hear, that in each of us present we'd be pursuing your mind. We'd be pursuing you and understanding the great gift your gospel has brought. And that we'd be willing to 
say it without apology to those we know and love, knowing that they might not be those that hear, but that is a judgment they make. Thank you. In your son's name, amen.